I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I thought, you know, I've got all this money. I'm sitting in front of a $10 million penthouse. I'm driving a sports car. I've got places all over the world, all this sort of gear. And I'm so sad. I want to get rid of all that stuff. I don't want those things anymore. Barry is a TV presenter, speaker and builder who you might recognise from The Living Room on Channel 10. Barry's story spans long before TV. He spent over 30 years in the building industry with his own very successful company, but at 46, he officially retired from renovating, selling everything he owned to sail around the world. Barry's life journey has been pretty big. He's stepped in the ring with depression as well as cancer multiple times, and so has his life partner, Leonie. The pair have been incredibly resilient in taking on a fertility journey that spanned over 10 years, multiple miscarriages and surrogacy. I find Barry to be such a resilient, inspiring and kind man. He has his heart and mind set on leaving the world a better place than he finds it. And honestly, the insights he shared today will stay with me for life. Enjoy my chat with Barry Dubois. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. For me, I love hearing about where my guests have grown up and their past life and kind of how that's influenced them today. We spoke a little bit about your dad really valuing storytelling. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? And I'm interested to hear, did you have a vision for your life or did you kind of know what your life wanted to be as a young Barry? Yeah, I think we all have a vision of what we expect life to look like or what we think life's going to be. And and that's that vision's created by what we're surrounded by. Mm-hmm. We talked about my dad and my dad was a, a very confident man growing up in the, the western suburbs of Sydney out near Liverpool back in those days. So we're talking the 60s. To me, that wasn't like living a long way out. It was like mum and dad were frontier people. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd moved from Paddington and Nashville to go out for a better life. And they were determined we were going to have that better life. Um, they'd rented their two-bedroom fibro house for about two years. And I think back in those days, the deal was if you rented something, that rent would be the deposit mm-hmm. on the place. And they bought that. And we lived in that house for about 30 years between Liverpool and Bankstown, actually near the airport. And, uh, we grew up in that little house. There was vacant blocks either side of us and there was a big paddock behind us. My dad always had a, a second business going. He was a tool maker and an engineer by day, but he would always make box trailers or repair lawnmowers or do something in the garage mm-hmm. downstairs that he would then advertise because we lived on a pretty busy road and, you yeah. know, he was that guy could do anything and he prided himself on the fact he could do anything. But what that meant for us as kids that we had go-karts and billy carts and mm-hmm. and mini bikes at a very young age and we could, we could turn anything into something that uh, carried us and gave us fun. And what was your mum like? My mum was uh, just perfection in every way, just the kindest, most empathetic 
beautiful human you could meet. It's as simple as that. Um, and that emotion comes up because so much of the memory of my mum is the last decade and the terrible time she had with cancer. Mm. So, yep, smiling, thinking as a child how beautiful and how perfect she was, but also remembering how life, how cruel life could be that someone so perfect could suffer so badly. I read that you have or heard that you have like a bit of a ritual when you drive past where you used to live, you kind of stop. What's the importance of that for you? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. We love that little house, but it was cheap, I guess, because it was uh, near the river and it was, you know, it, it became a flood zone. It wasn't a flood zone when we got it, but the development around the area meant that the river didn't have the um, floodplains that it used to have mm-hmm. because developers built up that area which then meant it flooded where we were. We used to think that was fantastic, though. I mean, as kids, mm-hmm. when your house is surrounded <laughs> by water, yeah. yeah, sure, we'd have to pack, pack the box trailer and take it up to the bridge with all our precious belongings and put everything up on the kitchen table and the house and um, make all those precautions. But then the next day, the, the river would have overflowed and it encompassed us surrounded your home. So we had the little tinny that we would mm-hmm. paddle around and go to the neighbor's place in a tinny and mum would somehow be able to still make scones and we'd share those yeah. with other people, etc. So, um, yeah, but that house then, the government took that office. They said we couldn't live there anymore and they gave us a pathetic amount of money for the most mm-hmm. beautiful place on earth. And, and uh, now... How would I ever drive? I, I, I don't go the freeway. I, I turn off Henry Lawson Drive and go down Newbridge Road and pull into the driveway and just drown myself again there. Mm. It's beautiful. It's just a vacant block now. I want to kind of talk about your early career. You've done so much and I think a lot of people kind of see you as the host of The Living Room and you're this media personality, but you've had a very, very successful career prior to TV. I read that, you know, you're into you're into investing and building and you had your own businesses. Mm. But up until the age of 45, you're doing all this and then you retire. Can you kind of walk me through what led up to that point? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it sounds like a great story, and it is. I mm-hmm. love my life story. I think it's a cracker. <laughs> <laughs> but the the simple fact was, yeah, I had done very well. I'd done very well financially. The confidence I had, the self belief I had, the work ethic I got from my parents. If you have those things, I think it's hard not to be successful, mm-hmm. quite frankly. And I was, but there was a whole lot of other things happening. And I talk about it a lot with the work I do now, but I'd started to knot myself up with stress mm. uh, as an alpha male and a bit of a control freak, I think, back then, or more so than now. I felt responsible for the things that were going wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some really deep personal things that happened within the extended family that affected me terribly. Mum suffering with cancer was really, really difficult. And um, not being able to fix those things when you thought you could do anything, mm-hmm. when you spent your life believing and achieving, believing you can do anything and achieving great things, and then not being able to have any effect on something that's causing so much pain to someone you love. It was really harsh. And I just, I just kept knotting that knot up without realising it. I realise it now because it's, it's one of the things I love to do is help others mm-hmm. unknot their lives. But then mum passed away. Whilst that was happening, Leonie and I were trying desperately to have children, which wasn't working out for a whole bunch of reasons. We'd suffered, or she had suffered, and I say she, but we had suffered uh, three or four miscarriages before we started IVF. 
And I think we had about 12 miscarriages during IVF. Mm. And whilst IVF is a great scientific step forward, it's a great way to kill a relationship. <laughs> it's very um, clinical, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, and I'm not saying it did that, but it definitely affects the relationship. Mm. So mum, this, that, everything else. And then on the 12th um, time that I heard that very familiar scream from the bathroom, that we'd failed again, this time at 17 weeks with twins, mm. seeing heartbeats already, looking at the um, ultrasounds, etc. That was then, took us into hospital and um, that pain was then increased severely when we found out there was cancerous cells in Leone's um, cervix and cervical cancer. Yeah, so... Of course, we lost the ability to have children naturally, but I also then had a wife with cancer, and it was twelve months later, uh, twelve months earlier, I'd buried my mum from mm-hmm. cancer. So that knot and that manifestation of the fact that I was failing to fix anything, and somehow a part of everything that was going wrong, I really started to blame myself. I really started to um, take responsibility somehow believing that that was taking the pain away from people that were being hurt. It's a funny way to think about it, but as the human I was, the protector, the alpha male, if you will, the person who thought he could fix anything, not being able to have any impact on any of those things, I really took responsibility for them within my own mental health. And uh, that started to really drive me deep into a depressive state. And depression is an interesting thing. You don't wake up Monday morning depressed. Mm. You can wake up Monday morning having a shit day. There's no doubt about it, but that's not depression. That dark tunnel where you start to even move away from your own body and, yep. and, and see yourself as a, as a different person in a world that you think is, is just wrong. That's where I was. And um, I got really, really deep and dark. I'd, I'd said terrible things to Leone. I didn't see her as a support. I, I thought she was better off without me. I considered all sorts of deep and dark things. And um, it's funny I'm talking to you about this and I'm realizing all the things I tell corporates and individuals to do is the opposite to what I was doing. <laughs> so that's confusing for me at this mm. very second. But um, Were you telling Leone at the time, were you voicing to anyone that you felt responsible for the pain no, and suffering? Or, no, no, so you're just no, kind of experiencing I, this alone yeah, yeah, and totally. it's spiraling. Yeah, depression is a lonely, totally. it's a lonely tunnel. And um, no, I was telling Leone I didn't want to be with her anymore. Right. I was doing all sorts of things. The one thing I was doing was making a hell of a lot of money. It was a joyous time for developers in Sydney, the mm. early 2000s, leading up to that big boom and, two, and that big crash in 2007. And the one thing that I did know to get us out of this depressive talk That's that okay. right. is that I, I could really read, because I was an investor, mm. that you can't make the profits we were making and sustain those profits. I did not believe for a second that was possible. Mm-hmm. So I said to Leone, uh, I'm really sorry, but I've had enough. I want out. Of uh, the IVF? Of, of life. Well, IVF was uh, over yeah. uh, because Leonie had mm-hmm, cervical mm-hmm. cancer and she'd been through treatment for all that sort of stuff. But no, I, I said uh, the world's going to crash and I, I saw it as a really bad place. I mm-hmm. said the world's going to crash. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm selling everything and I'm going sailing. The last time I was happy was on the Georges River or in one of those floods going around on a tinny. And I remember saying to my brother, 
when we get older and we've got enough money, let's get by ourselves a tinny and just mm-hmm. go around Australia in a tinny, you know. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, I've got all this money. I'm sitting in front of a $10 million penthouse. I'm driving a sports car. I've got places all over the mm-hmm, world, all mm-hmm. this sort of gear. And, I'm and, and I'm so sad. I want to get rid of all that stuff. I don't want those things anymore. I mean, I was wrong. They weren't really affecting me. <laughs> but I did. I liquidated everything and um, retired. Yep. The market crashed. I looked like a genius. <laughs> I took credit for it. <laughs> and uh, and I bought my beautiful yacht, Bella Sonny, in France and, and was determined to sail around the world. So that was my retirement plan. As I said, you don't wake up Monday morning with depression. Mm-hmm. It takes about X amount of time to get into it. Mm-hmm. I was wallowing in it for quite a while. People, because I think this happens for a lot of successful people or celebrities, they, you know, reach this level of success, they're still depressed or they're still unfulfilled. Yeah. Do you think the fact that there are so many material assets, like staring them in the face, reminding them, you've got all these things, you should be happy, you should be happy. Do you think that actually makes it worse? And if the person wasn't surrounded by wealth and success, they'd, I don't know, it's an interesting dynamic that people have everything they seemingly should need, but they feel even worse. Yeah, I think possessions can be. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but I think possessions can be a bubble. I'm going to tell you a quick story that was one of the the things that happened to me. I went home one night and like I did a lot, I just sat in the street near my house Mm. because I just didn't want to go in. That's a $10 million penthouse and I'm sitting in a really flash sports car and on the outside, with the possessions I had and all those things, my exterior looked like the dream exterior. Mm. And this was one of the moments, uh, the boys had already started talking to me and I, because that depression, that moment of when you're asked, are you okay, it doesn't solve the problem right there and then. But I'd started to rethink. It was one of those times where I was manifesting on how the world would be better off if I wasn't here because... Leone would have all this money and she could do whatever she wanted to. She could meet the right guy and have children and that life would be perfect mm. because this and where I live wasn't far from the gap. It's as simple as that. And I, I started to think if I'm going to do that, that's the way I'll do it. Maybe they'll just think I ran away because I really was running away mm. a lot of the time. And... I wanted to talk to a mate, probably just to hear his voice one last time. And I rang him up and, and said uh, on the speakerphone, Gaz, how are you, mate? And uh, he said, well, Baza, just this guy's a bull. He's just the strongest human on earth. He said, Baza, it's Thursday afternoon, so we're fucking out of money. I've come down the bottle. I've got uh, enough money for four cans. Simone's making baked beans toasted sandwiches for the kids and me and we'll watch a movie. So we're doing okay. And uh, I started to cry and I said, fuck, I want that life. I want it to be that simple. And I think that was one of the, uh, one of the pins that started to bust the bubble that I created of facade around myself that these possessions were making me happy and that and they were making me happy I love all those things but I wasn't dealing with the real problem Mm. the problem that I was trying to solve Gaz's problems 
I think I would have said to him, I'm going to send some money over. I'm sure I would have. Mm. And I was deep in depression at that state. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Probably as dark as I could get, quite frankly. But, you know, it was one of the things I'll say, let's say it it pricked the bubble or it started to burst the bubble. It was one of the things that pushed me to change. Okay, if he can be so happy with nothing, maybe I'm better off with nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a balance between all or nothing. And we have to find it. And know? so that conversation, did that essentially change the path for you? It was one of the grains of sand. Mm. Let, let's, not, let's not end this thinking that a conversation can completely can solve everything. every problem. Mm. It's one of the grains of sand that gets in front of the wheel and starts to change its direction. As I've said to you, life is a river. It never stops flowing. The last time you see it flowing is when you go over the waterfall and you shut your eyes and who knows what happens next. But it doesn't stop flowing. But, you know, the buildup of energy pushes it in different directions, over rocks, through snags, sometimes waterfalls, sometimes big, broad lakes. Mm. That's our life. And, um, you know, I don't know how I get onto that subject. But uh, as I said, you don't wake up Monday morning with depression. Mm -hmm. It takes about X amount of time to get into it. Mm -hmm. I was wallowing in it for quite a while. And... Again, I'm talking about what I tell people to do. I was playing touch football. I was playing tennis. I was working physically on the site. And and I'm a big believer that human movement is a great way Mm. to control emotions and help you with it. But what I say today in my talks is that I did all those dynamic things. I was a physical character, Mm -hmm. surfer, swimmer, Mm -hmm. as I often joke around, big, good-looking guy. (laughs) (laughs) Put that on the resume. (laughs) Put that on the resume, yeah. But what I'd stopped doing is smiling. What I'd stopped doing was investing in positivity, which I had done my whole life. And I remembered, and Leonie did the smartest thing you could do. She convinced my mates that I wasn't right, Mm. that she wasn't the terrible person that I was telling them she was. Because she wasn't. Yeah. She was just an incredible supportive rock. And they kept saying to me, are you okay? Are you okay? And I kept saying, of course I'm okay. Stop asking me. You know, stop saying that. What do you think was the difficulty in admitting that you weren't Because okay? I, I was the guy that used to look after those guys. Mm. Whether it was a punch-up in a pub or give them a job, I was that guy. Yep. <laughs> a big, tough, strong, good-looking mm-hmm. guy. Scared of nothing. And uh, when people were worried about you not being that person, Mm. that's like taking away the last thing you have. It's your identity. It's your identity, Mm. exactly. So eventually, because my brother said, I just need to know you are because I'm struggling a bit. And I said, what? Let's talk about it. And I think that and Leonie's persistent support and her saying, I know you're not you now, so you do whatever it takes to get yourself right, Mm. I'll be here. And I said, well, I'm going to sail around the world. And, and she went with you? She said, go. I hate boats. <laughs> but we did buy, we have a beautiful yacht. And uh, Leonie was determined to make it work, thank God. And she was determined to have children with the, men that she, the man that she loves. <clears throat> so her resilience is incredible. But um, so, yeah, Leonie would spend uh, probably three months of the year on the yacht with me. I would spend the two or three months either side of that mm-hmm. sailing. I went everywhere. I sailed all over the world and that thing. Then in summer, I'd come back to Bondi Beach and again, started to invest, started to tell my story again, started to tell what it was like to sail from Italy to Africa, Mm -hmm. tell stories again, invest in positive, let people know they can do anything. 
Was your mental health starting to improve from taking that break? Yeah, taking the break, changing what life looked like. I think it's really important. But again, the physicality I found was smiling again. Mm -hmm. The physicality I found that helped that movement of the cells that make you a, a strong human again was investing in positivity. It wasn't playing tennis or touch football or surfing. It was investing in a positive conversation. That's still a physical thing. Mm, I think we'll get into your work with Are You OK Day and um, mental health ambassador work. Mm -hmm. But I'm acutely aware that for a lot of people, as you said, when you're in it, saying, reach out to your friends, do Mm. this exercise, eat well, like you actually don't want to do that. That's the irony of depression is that you know probably – you're aware of all the things that you could be doing to make yourself feel better, but you just simply do not have the will to do it. So I guess if anyone's listening to this and they're in that state that you perhaps were in, other than investing in positivity, is there anything that you can impart that helped? Yeah, Yeah, I'd love to. I say this to people, it's in one of my talks. If you stand on one leg and put your hand on your nose and the other hand out, and you can balance, you've got really good physical balance. Most of us will get a little rocky though. Mm-hmm. I'm 62, probably five kilos overweight and, and I'll lose my balance. Mm-hmm. I've got a reasonable core. I've got good hamstrings, solid thighs and good calf muscles. And so I can balance mm-hmm. reasonably well. I do a lot of yoga. So it's really easy to see if you're losing your physical balance. It's not that easy to see if you're losing your emotional balance or your mental health balance. Mm. So what I ask people to do is just ask themselves and be honest, do you ever just sit out the front of your home or around the corner from your home and just say, I need a break from everything? Because you shouldn't. Mm. I'm not saying you shouldn't stop, but you shouldn't need a break. The reason you feel you do is because home life is out of balance and work life is out of balance. We, we have a term which I hate, which is called work-life balance. And what it means is somehow work is bad and life is mm. good. Now, sometimes life is bad as well. And life is just the best of the two bads. But for some people, going to work is the best thing they can have because their home mm. life is so unbalanced. Get back to the subject, Baz. So I say, <laughs> if you find yourself stopping, if you find yourself checking emails at the dinner table, mm. if you sleep with the phone beside your bed, if you sleep with the phone on, these are signals that you don't have good mental health balance or emotional balance. Yeah. If you take a big breath before you walk in the door because you have to prepare answers, think about that. You don't have to prepare answers mm. with the ones that you love. And if you love yourself, you'll just enjoy whatever comes out and that means you're more balanced. So it's just little simple things that are not a knotted up fishing line yet, Mm. but, you know, a little tangled. Yeah, there's no reason to be scared to go home. There's no reason to be worried that the boss is about to walk in. Mm. There's no reason that you would think of a reason not to be with your children. And if you do, that's not the end of the world. But it's time to change something. And what I say, it's time to stop trying to balance plates, spinning plates. It's time to get the most important things in your world on your plate. And we all know what they are. And if you don't... Get the non-negotiables happening. Yeah, get those happening. And um, I hope I've explained that well. No, totally. Because I went off the track there. But there are a lot of ways to just realise you're out of balance. And then you strengthen them. What makes you want to hang out with the kids? What makes you want to get home Mm. and see your loved ones? 
and and focus on those Go from things. There. I'm yeah. keen. We'll talk probably a little bit later about your your toolkit, your mental and physical toolkit, mm. and the things that have kind of worked for you. But you come back to Bondi, you are starting to feel a little bit better. At what point in this journey do you find out that you have cancer? Oh, that's uh, a while into it. Okay. You, know, you know, my strength uh, had come back from the depression. Mm-hmm. Leonie and I were back on trying to create, uh, trying to have children. What were the options for but you? The options that you for us first were uh, adoption. That mm-hmm. was the first one we looked at. It's a very difficult situation. My wife had cancer, therefore, the adoption world sees her as somehow deficient. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. I, think the, I think the adoption laws in this country are horrific, mm. quite frankly. Well, they were when we were doing it. I'm not that involved in it now. So, But then we discovered surrogacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was something that was becoming more popular and we'd explored. We're very lucky humans. I'm a man of means, you know, like that meant, okay, if means we go and live in America, we're going to live in America. Yeah. We can do those mm-hmm. things. And uh, so I'm very lucky. But you don't have to go and live in America or anybody that's struggling uh, with fertility. There's lots of options that are obtainable. Mm-hmm. But we were pursuing the surrogacy route, so to speak, building life again. I was interested in business again. Mm-hmm. I was smiling again. I was investing in positivity. When you invest in positivity, you you look for positive things to do. Yeah. And uh, you wouldn't believe it. There's a great story, a scary story, but a great story. Leone was a, is a personal trainer. Yeah. She, she was a personal trainer before they were trendy. Mm-hmm. She started personal training on Bondi Beach. There was one personal trainer on Bondi Beach. <laughs> it was her. <laughs> it was her, yeah. And uh, it's really funny. I tell this story. It was back when I used to go to the Anzac Day Memorial, mm-hmm. and there was about 18 people there. Wow. Now yeah. it's thousands. Yes, yeah, thousands. I used to say, you know, where these people come from? Because they haven't been here for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so Leone knew the importance of uh, nutrition mm-hmm. and physical exercise when it comes to depression. I'd realized the importance of talking and investing in storytelling again, which I, I love. And uh, I was getting strong again and I was surfing again and swimming again, sailing every year. We, we had, uh, I think, 13 or 14 summers. Wow. You know, so mm-hmm. Europe, some, all that sort of stuff. And um, I'd been down to my, uh, my dad had passed away and um, I'd been down to mum and dad's home, which we were, you know, we had to get rid of eventually, but we just loved my brother and I and my nephew. We'd go down for little surfing trips. Mm-hmm. And I'm peeling off on a little right hander down at Sussex Inlet there one day. This is when we just come back from Europe. Went under the wave and I heard this ungodly crunch in my head. And I thought, oh, that, that's bad. It was painful as well. Oh, it was, it, my, my whole head was tingling. Mm-hmm. I was laying in the water and I was holding my breath and I think, can I get up? Can I? And I was too scared to try because I felt I'd broken my neck. But I pulled my legs and I gingerly stood in the water. A wave hit me and my brother said, what's wrong? I said, oh, no, something wrong with my neck. I've hurt my neck, you know. And uh, being someone who's always been physical, I love playing rugby league. I've done everything, boxing, everything. Mm-hmm. And being a builder, who, who generally builders live with sore backs, <laughs> again, because of lack of core. But anyway, yeah. another story. I just pushed through it, mm-hmm. went to the physio, said, you know, crack my neck back into place. There's something seriously wrong in there. And they were very dubious to be cracking my neck around and yeah. moving me too much. And it went on for about 
Well, that was Christmas time and it was March when my physiotherapist said, Baz, I'm not prepared to touch you anymore unless you get some x-rays. So you've been walking around essentially with a broken neck for three months. That's a bit of a killer. You've just killed my story. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but what I'd also had been happening, and my story is so diverse, but a great mate of mine, Peter Cahoon, mm-hmm. who's the architect on Better Homes and Gardens, mm-hmm. the, the opposing show to the living room. My best mate is on that show. Arch nemesis. Arch nemesis. <laughs> and I love everyone on that show, mm. quite frankly. But when Leonie would jump off the boat, Peter'd say, what do you think about going to Tunisia? And I'd say, great. He goes, all right get yourself to Tunisia, we'll go there, we'll go down and, and check out the Sudan, blah, 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 mm. all these sorts of amazing things. And Pete being a TV guy back then, he would video everything we'd done. Yeah. And then he came up with this great idea that we would make a show where this artist and builder who's passionate about architecture and an architect would sail into these great cities that had changed the history of the world we live in and we'd be able to make money making mm. sailing around the world looking at architecture. And I said, well, I don't like TV, but if you want to make it, I'm I'm in on it. And he'd made this sort of a sizzle reel and a few people had seen it and loved it. And a guy by the name of Carl Fennessy saw it, who's really huge in TV. And they were creating a show called The Renovators. And um, Carl said to the series producer, I like the architect guy from Better Homes, but that big builder on the boat, I want him from the living room. Mm. And so they kept having um, producers and casting agents call me up and say, we want you to come and cast for this show. I said, not interested in doing TV. You're all idiots. You know, you, it just wasn't my go. I didn't watch TV. I didn't like TV. I wasn't interested in it. But they just kept ringing, kept ringing, kept ringing. And you wouldn't believe it. On this day that I finally got, i just come back from India because mm-hmm. uh, we were on, uh, done three or four attempts of surrogacy. I'd just come back from India. I'd gotten x-rayed before I left right. and I'd come back to pick up the uh, x-rays to go out to my physiotherapist. I rode into Bondo Junction on my Harley with the intention of just picking up the x-rays and heading straight mm-hmm. out to Homebush to the Institute of Sport out there. I said, I'd come to pick up my x-rays. She said, oh, you have to see the doctor. I said, I don't want to see a doctor. I'm not interested in doctors. I said, just give me the x-rays. I'm going to take them out to an expert. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite presumptuous or a pig, some might say. And she said, no, no, it's not how it works. I said, it's just money, I'll pay you. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just get this done. I don't want to be sitting in here with all these sick people. And <laughs> it's so rude, isn't it? But that's how I thought. You don't you don't feel that way towards doctors anymore, I suppose. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't think I really did then either. Yeah. I was just an impatient you just... Uh, person who, mm-hmm. want, who had a sore neck and a shocking headache. Yeah. A shocking headache. And I'd had that headache for about three months. But anyway, long story short, she said, listen, I'll have a look at the x-rays. If, there, if there's nothing in the report, I'll, I'll let you take them. She opened the envelope and we're in the reception of a, a doctor's surgery there with lots of people. And she literally said, fuck. And I said, what? <laughs> and, and she said, you're going to have to see a doctor. I said, what are you talking about? I said, show me. And she goes, no. Nah. And she goes straight on the phone. A woman walked in who I'd never seen in my life. And she said, come up. She's reading the report as we go up the stairs. I've never seen this human in my life, mm. right? Picture this. I've ridden her on my motorbike. We're sitting at her her uh, desk and she's turned her chair to literally, her leg was nearly touching my leg. Mm. And she put her hand on my leg and said, do you have family? I said, what's going on? Just read. And she, a tear started to come out mm. of her eye. And she's, and I said, 
just relax. I've got a headache. Everything's going to be okay. And she said, you've got a giant tumor in the base of your brain. And it's, I'm not sure what, what it is. I, I don't know, but you're in a lot of trouble. And uh, I said, oh, nah, can't be the case. That makes sense. But being the connected guy I am, I rang around and I got referred to Timmy Steele, who's the, who's the best uh, guy in the game at, at St. Vincent's there. A mate of mine rang him. I think he was on a golf course. He said he would come back and see me, get me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Kim suggested I didn't drive. They suggested I got an ambulance from what the report said. Little did I know I had no connection between my spine and my skull. Wow. So effectively, you're right. My neck had been broken. Uh, the tumour had eaten away my C1 vertebrae, most of my C2 vertebrae. It was gnawing away at the skull as, as well, mm-hmm. uh, where all the tendons and ligaments that make your neck move mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So I was re- really lucky that Tim came and saw me that day. I think he got to see me about two o'clock. You know, I'd had to explain this to Leone. We're in, in this thing. And he said to me, um, you're not going to believe it. There's, a, there's one guy in the world I trust to do this, and he's in the country at the moment. So I'm going to ask you to go into a CT machine, and we're going to roll you in and make some measurements and, and work out some angles. And then we're going to push this rod in through the side of your neck, just below your ear. And then we're going to try and miss your artery. And then we're going to punch it into whatever this thing is mm-hmm. and try and draw some out so we can work out. The biopsy. The biopsy, yeah. yeah. And I said, yeah, knock me out. You can do what you like because I'm petrified of needles. And he goes, no, no, you've got to do this completely awake because if we stroke you out, we need to know. You know, if we, we hit that nerve that shuts off your right. left left side, we need mm-hmm. to know. So you can imagine this day. <laughs> I mean, what this a, is all in one day. It's all in one day. Oh, and um you asked me about cancer, but this leads to somewhere else, which is really interesting. And that process took about three hours. Wow. Yeah, in and out of the mm-hmm. CT machine, mm-hmm. pushing this thing, having to back off too close to the artery, and then they literally hammer it into the side of your spine, and you're completely awake. Like, it's so heavy. My wife's crying. God. People are sweating. All this sort of stuff's happening, and... Um, it was about six o'clock at night. Tim had met with some other doctors and they brought me into a room sort of like this little studio here and I'm Leone and I on one side of the table and three doctors and some other people. I don't know who the other people were. But I'm now in this huge brace to hold mm. my head on and, and <laughs> all that sort of stuff and everybody's upset. Me, I'm just thinking, they've really mixed this up. This can't be as bad as everybody's making out. And the first lady said to me, listen, I suggest we don't bother with anything. I think uh, my best estimate is you have about three months to live and and you should just go home, live whatever you've got. And uh, my wife said some expletives and we told her we weren't interested in that theory. I said to Timmy, mate, listen, you do whatever you got to do. I said to the other guy who, who I, I still work with now, you do whatever you got to do, I'll do the rest. I said, I'm not giving up that easy, not a chance. And mm-hmm. uh, the reason I started to tell you this story, because you asked when that, can- oh, that yeah. cancer came in, but you wouldn't believe what happened at the exact same time. So I'm not scared of much, but I thought, what if they're right? What if she's right? <laughs> I said, I've got a yacht in the Mediterranean, I've got money in the, the Cayman Islands, it, you know, like, you've got the life. You've got it's well, all set up. Yeah, but but is it? You know, like mm. how do you contain all that? Who knows mm. all, everything? And I said, you know, better ring up my brother. And I want to ring up my brother. I wanted to hold my brother. And and I uh, 
I turned the phone on. It hadn't been on all day. And I turned the phone. It was one of those flip phones, you know. And as soon as I turned it on, it started to ring. I flipped it open and it's a private number. Because yeah. it was back in the day where you would answer a private mm-hmm. number. <laughs> and I said, hello. And uh, Kirsty De Lavance, who I love dearly, says, hi there. It's Kirsty De Lavance from a cast of thousands. We're really keen to get you in for this casting. <laughs> and I just looked at the phone. I've just been told all this, the people around me are crying, everything's thinking she's got that really upbeat, happy voice. And I just sort of laughed at the screen. And I, I was either going to throw the, camera, the, the phone out the window or I said, that was the fifth time she called me. I said, I'll tell you what, can you call me back in three months? And she said, yep. And I said, if you can call me back, if you're prepared to call me back in three months, I'll do it. Thinking, if I'm still here, I'm on telly. Yep. <laughs> you know? Put the phone down, rang my brother, the rest is history. I was on the, the renovator six months later. The difference is, of course, the photo Carl Fennessy saw, I was 115 kilos, pretty muscular, big guy. When I walked onto the casting set, I think I was 78 kilos. Mm. <laughs> he thought I had HIV. It was quite funny. Hi, everyone. A quick reminder that if you are loving this chat, I would be so grateful if you could take two minutes now to jump on whatever platform you're listening to this and leave a review or share the episode you're currently listening to on social media. I'd love to see where you're listening from. If you're going for a walk, if you're at the gym on the treadmill, if you're driving, obviously don't take a photo if you're driving. (laughs) But it is so incredible to see that we now have listeners from over 35 countries tuning in. And the more that we grow, the bigger guests I can bring you. I am so, so grateful that you're here on this journey with me and I'm excited about the live chats that we have coming up with some absolutely inspiring guests. Thank you so much. So you're going through your treatment, you get this gig on on TV, where in this timeline as well, you'd just been to India. So where... We'd been to India for, I think there was about the fourth time and uh, we'd had four failures, Mm -hmm. which was really devastating again. But the resilience I built up with what had happened earlier really helped. I think if any one of these things that happened, it could could break somewhere. But when when they keep happening, you just build more and more resilience and you can find, you can find a positive in anything. If you really want to. And somehow I can find a positive out of four failed attempts of surrogacy. If you can find a positive out of uh, 13 failed attempts of IVF and, and cervical cancer, you can find a positive out of anything. And, uh, and I knew that that positive energy is what keeps me going. Mm. And um, so I started doing the, the living room. That was uh, not the, the living room, the renovations. Yep. That was fantastic. I, as soon as the season was over, I went off to India again. We tried something there. We went to Europe. Did That one didn't work. The long story is on the seventh uh, time, I got a job on the, I uh, met Amanda Keller, which was a gift of life. I'd cast for the living room and we'd kick that show off. We were preparing for the show. And um, when they said, do I have any big events happening this year? I said, well, at this stage, our surrogate is pregnant with twins. And uh, we're super excited that in the beginning of June, we're going to have a baby babies. So I'll I'll be going away for that. And I said, the other thing is I want a cruise to go to, you know, that beautiful cruise uh, up around North Western Australia. Nice. Yeah. It it really did. 
And the uh, EP said, well, you can do one or the other. Which <laughs> <laughs> so, you can go so, to your berth or you can yeah, go on a cruise. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, I, we set off uh, making the living room. I fell in love with three amazing human beings and the whole crew of amazing people. And the children came on the, we were in India on the, uh, in June when they were born in 2012. And were you in remission at that stage or where was your treatment at? Yeah, the, the first cancer I had was what's called a plasmacytoma myeloma. And what normally happens is, You don't get that again, but it develops into what they used to call multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. And generally, you have about five years to live. That's what they say. Now they call it myeloma, not multiple, because Mm -hmm. it's a blood cancer, so it's right through your blood. Me being me, I wasn't prepared to take any of those diagnoses, so I traveled the world and explored the world and found out everything I could find out about the human body, the 37 trillion cells that make up the body, and how I can create the best cells I can create mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And having my beautiful angels and my supportive wife and the amazing life I have and the, the balance I'm able to create in it, here I still am. I'm keen to talk about that. I just Something that came to mind when you were talking about everything you've been through, you've lived this amazing big life, but it's not been without these tragedies as well. Did you ever have the mindset, I can imagine many people, maybe not with your resilience or your positivity, would say, why me? Like this, these things keep happening over and over and over again. Why do some people go through so much and other people kind of sail through life without these difficulties? I'm wondering if that was ever a mindset that you were in. Two answers. The first answer is why, why me and why those people? It's because we can handle it. I used to think, thank God it's me because I don't want to see anybody go through this. Thank God it's me not my brother, thank God it's me and not my wife. Thank God it's me and not my best mate. I'm the only person I know that could stand this fight or not stand it, that I'm the only person I know that I would want to put in the ring with this guy. I wouldn't let my brother step in the ring with that guy. And uh, I think I live in an interesting world just like those people you were talking about that have lived through so many things. I don't call them tragedies. I call it life, Mm -hmm. the river of life. My river is deep and it's powerful because of the turbulences, the little waterfalls, the the snags. The boulders. The boulders. And it's uh, it's ever-flowing. Yeah. And uh, and that's how I see it. And uh, I do worry that people aren't prepared Mm -hmm. As I wasn't prepared, but I got there. That's what I try and share. That's why I'm sitting here talking to you. It's just to, to let people know that there are these things that seem like the worst thing that can happen to you, but they're not. The worst thing that can happen to you is you die. It's as simple as that. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Thank you for being so honest and, and sharing. And I do think the listeners will take a lot of value out of just your transparency around the fact that life is hard and, you know, we have to have these tools and we have to be willing to face it. But I want to talk about the birth of your beautiful twins. Mm. You wrote on Instagram that life started again after their birth. Yeah. How did life change and how did how did, has becoming a dad changed you? You know, it was, um, as a young man, I said that children wouldn't change my life. I would always be this guy and that guy and, you know, I... You say all these stupid things, but uh, when those children are born and you hold their little heads and you realise you're responsible not only for creating them but for them, it's just the most empowering thing 
that can happen to you and everything is them. Like I just said to you, I'd rather step in the ring with cancer than have my brother do it. Can you imagine then the self-sacrifice that you can imagine for your children? Mm. There is no limit to that, no limit at all. But I am very passionate that there is no limit to what you should sacrifice Mm. for your children. Um, yeah. So and, and has that been kind of at the forefront of your mind going through your treatments? Like if you're doing it for them, you want to be around as long as possible for them. Is that is uh, that it? No, no, I, I wouldn't. Have, yeah, you can say it like that if you like. Mm. I don't have that sort of mindset to things. Is it, there's, there's, people say what you just said, and, that, I, and I want to go back to it, is that you've had all these tragedies, all these bad things. You just said it. You've seen my kids. You know the life I have my kids. That life gave me those kids. Mm. That life is a joy because I have those kids. Yeah, cancer, depression, losing my mum, my wife's miscarriages, all those things had to happen to have this result. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible positive. I'm not really interested in the negative of it mm-hmm. because if I invest in that negative, I just start tangling up inside my body, and I get no return on my investment. If I smile at you, listeners, I'm smiling (laughs) at her and you're smiling back, Mm -hmm. I get a return on my investment. I only look for positive. So nothing about my life is tragic. My life is the best life in the world because I'm 62 years old. I'm sitting here talking to you. My gorgeous children at school, they're going to thrive in life later because of the time I get to spend with them. Everything about my life is amazing. Tell me about some of the things that work for you in life, mentally and physically. I know you mentioned you do yoga and nutrition is really important to you. Has that been a bit of a journey to kind of develop this toolkit of things that you know work? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting. I I realized about 25 years ago that if I meditated, I would perform better at work. Uh, I would make better decisions. Mm. So when I was told that meditation, breath work is something they use in Germany before you're allowed to have chemo, I thought, well, I have already experienced that. So that makes sense Mm -hmm. to me. I'm going to put it like this. I'm not going to try and give you a list of things you should be out there doing, but I want to say this. Like I said, I think, I think this is right. Your beautiful body is made up of about 37 trillion cells. Mm -hmm. Now, most of those cells, I think nearly all those cells will be completely renewed in 12 months. You know, even your spine, Mm. I think spine is one of the, the ones that take a lot longer but So nothing that's sitting in front of me now is going to be there in 12 months. That's amazing. It's, it's a new world. So I've had a stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know that we, uh, we have these little baby cells, these little baby stem cells that haven't worked out what they're going to be when they grow up yet. But the, the better we nurture those, the better we, you turn out. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. your face will stay less creased. Your heart will pump strong. Your lungs will draw in oxygen, etc. If you make the best cells you can make, how do you make good cells? Good nutrition, good exercise, balanced mindset, good neuropaths, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. So whatever makes, whatever honestly makes you happy is what you should be doing. I'm sitting here with you drinking a coffee. Do I think coffee is good for me? No, but I enjoy it, mm-hmm. okay? I love chocolate. Now, I don't like to eat too much chocolate, but I love the stuff. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. Yeah, I meditate, but I'm more meditate because I'll sometimes manifest on a thought and can't sleep. 
I know the importance of sleep. So I use meditation to help me sleep, breath work to help me sleep. So I use all those things, but I don't believe there is one template for everyone. Mm. I believe we're all a little bit different. We've all got our own cells. We've all got our own DNA in our own cells. So we just need to find those things. But like I said, more importantly, if you can be honest with yourself and recognize that you're afraid to have a conversation, Mm. If you're afraid to have a conversation, something is unbalanced. If you are scared to miss an email, something's unbalanced. It might not be much unbalanced, but the scale is starting to tip. Mm. You should be, oh, I've got an email. For, you know, but we, I don't believe you should be checking emails at your desk. You know, there's so many things. I, I'm going to share something with you that I've shared a few times now, but I think it's a real, um, it's a real help. You and I earlier were talking about. Uh, storytelling, mm. and I love storytelling, and I think that's a really healthy thing as well. Talking, to communicating, others, yeah. deep conversation is such a powerful tool. But people say, "Oh, you got to get off technology." I love technology, and believe it or not, before I came in here, mm-hmm. before I came in to to do this, I wasn't thinking about what I was going to talk to you about. I had five minutes free. You text me, "Do you want a coffee?" Yep. I said yes. I had five minutes free. Now. I have on my notes on my phone a whole bunch of headings and I, I'm, I'm a bit dyslexic so I just push the uh, microphone button and I say mm-hmm. something. The last one that I did was just the other day. It was a headmaster interview with Arabella. I sat in the office of the headmaster at the high school that she's going to go to mm-hmm. and listen to my daughter be interviewed by a headmaster. It was so beautiful. It was so powerful and I loved it so much. And it gave me, it gave all those little cells in me so mm. much beautiful energy and endorphins yep. to make me a more powerful, beautiful human being. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to let it go there. As soon as I had a second, I just pushed record on the notes and started recalling a lot of the things that she said that I want to tell her about. Mm-hmm. And then when we got home, mum, I said, tell mum how the interview went. And she's talking. I went to my room. Again, I pushed the notes and I just, her her empathetic nature just shone in this interview. I was so proud of her. Now, I use technology to hold that because we get millions and millions of messages every day now. And it's so easy to let that turn into a white blur, Mm. right? But when I then go and do a talk in the South Australian Hills the other day, I'm in a hotel room on my own. So I go to my notes and then I start reliving those beautiful moments through the notes that I've taken. Mm. But then I turn that into a letter to Arabella telling her how it affected me. So I get to live it again. That little tiny positive moment, I can live that again and again and again. And thanks to technology, I can do that. Because I'm not the guy that can take shorthand while my daughter's talking, but I can walk mm. out of the room and just say some some words. So I love that. I love the the fact that we can use those things to balance our life. And she gets to live that moment as well. You said, you know, you get to relive that moment. She reads that letter and she gets to know that her dad's proud of her and that she, you know, is a good, kind human being, which is, you can't put a price on that, giving a child that stability and that love as well. Yeah, hopefully she believes me and, and, and when she has a moment, there's dozens of letters to my children. I think it's a way, I always have to have this in the back of my mind, what if I'm not here? Is that a daily thing for you? It's, it's there. It's in my head. Mm. 
We all should think it, though. You should think it. I we, do we think, should, yeah, yeah. Should, yeah. We, every human should think it. And then what do you really want to happen if you're not? And mm. what is it? It's a strong legacy. And if, I hate even saying the word, if I'm not, and she's facing a self-esteem problem, she can, I hope she will, read the letters where I talk about her self-esteem, mm. where I talk about how strong she was as a 10-year-old yeah. in a room with an adult. Do they, you have that thought, if I'm not here, do they ever ask you? Do your kids ever ask you that? No, kids don't understand mortality. Mm. They, uh, when I was in isolation in a hospital bed, they said, is daddy going to be all right? I said, yeah, of course mm. I'm going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all going to be all right. Because I, I do a monthly treatment still yeah, yeah. and, and uh, bi-monthly checkups and um I said, what are you doing today, Dad? And I said, I've got to go to the doctors. And uh, she, are you sick? I said, no, I'm sick. Just we have to eat better. We have to breathe more. We have mm-hmm. to meditate more. Uh, that's We don't get sick. We just need to do the good things more. I think something that we said off mic as well that's worth just reiterating is that, you know, it's about looking after yourself mm. so that you can look after your village rather than trying to fix and solve everything for everyone in the whole world. It's just it's just too big of a task. But what you can do for the listeners is like, are you focusing and you looking after yourself and then are you caring for your mm. community too? If you love yourself and you invest in yourself, that will spill over and you can love those around mm. you. And if you can help them with your love, love themselves, that spills over and we create a better community and a better society. And if that means then we go to work and we spill over that love at work and we create better innovation, Mm. better results in every regard, that's a sustainable situation. But like you said, if you're trying to keep pouring your cup out but there's nothing in it, as you said so beautifully, you can't pour for an empty cup. You can empty a cup though and that's a mistake. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it takes getting to the bottom of the cup to realize that that's where you're at. Like, as you said, depression, you don't just wake up Monday morning. It's a seemingly process that builds up and up and up over time. You're pouring your cup out and then Mm. you reach the bottom where you're like, I have nothing left. I was really lucky to bump into, oh, Leonie encouraged me to go and see a nutritionist that a friend of hers had recommended. And that's exactly, I'm glad you just said that. that. That's what they said. You're at the bottom of the pit. Your bucket of water is nearly empty. There's a hole in the bottom. And it's only a small hole, and if you keep putting water in, you can you can keep mm. it up. It'll, it'll never overflow. But and they said what we're going to do is drown you in vitamins and minerals, and you, we're going to do that with supplements. We're going to do that with mm-hmm. organic food. Yep. We're going to do that. And, and Leonie followed up on that, and what that did was made the holes really small, so the bucket could refill. And then we did live blood tests. I did a lot of live blood testing. Mm-hmm. Something else that I do a lot of these days is macrobiome testing. Mm. Now, if you're sitting in the basement, not going up to your flat or you're sitting around the corner or you're, you're scared to start a conversation, think about macrobiome test. It's a little expensive, but it tells you if your gut's in shape. Because if mm. your gut's in shape, your neuro's not going to be in shape. If your gut's not in shape, your neuro's not going to be in shape. That means you're not going to sleep properly. That means you're not going to exercise properly. That means you're not going to regenerate those beautiful little cells properly. Incredible. Thank you. I feel like we'll do a follow-up. We'll do a follow-up episode to talk about all the health and nutrition things that we didn't get to fully unpack today because you're a wealth of knowledge and you are living, you're a living example of it. Like how can we better our environment? How can we better our relationships? How can we better ourselves so that not only we are stronger 
happier humans, but the people around us are as well. So I do want to kind of, before we wrap up, this podcast tends to be a bit existential. I kind of always delve into these topics with guests. I'm keen to hear about, I read that with your last treatment, you prayed or you started praying. Do you have a belief in something greater or what's your kind of relationship, I suppose, with with that practice? I uh, don't know where you heard that. I don't pray. <laughs> oh, I think I read it somewhere that you might have prayed when you're in hospital. Or listen, I'm, I'm a, I have great respect for uh, religion and faith. Yeah. And faith, mm. uh, you know. Um, no, I think what you uh, might have heard, and this is going to get a little ghastly. It's okay. And it's something to remember, though. When you're going through the type of chemo I had to go through to have a stem cell transplant, mm-hmm. it's horrific. It's it's really really terrible. And I probably, I did say out loud to myself, I promise if I have to eat a piece of shit every day of the rest of my life not to go through this again, I will. That's how bad it was. So I don't know who I was talking to. I was probably just Mm. promising myself or, you know, don't give up on yourself. Don't put yourself through this again, Mm -hmm. whatever you do. And make sure you do everything you can to know that you're prepared as you can. Mm-hmm. When I went into that battle, I could have stepped in the ring with a, with a light middleweight champion of the world. I was the fittest I had been for 20 years. And if you saw the when Amanda came in and visited me when I was finally out of isolation, I was already pushing the bands. I was already yeah. moving the energy in my body. I knew there was physical movement, nutrition, and a good mindset was going to get me back mm. thriving really quickly. Is meditation for you something that you know is it's almost like brushing your teeth? You do it every day mm. to feel good or is there any sort of, I guess, spiritual or I'm not religious either, but is mm. there any sort of greater connection for you in that or it's just a routine? No, it's, it's part of my life. Uh, it's interesting. I, I do have a friend whose dad had the same cancer as me. He's very religious and I talked to him about meditation. He says, prayer is my meditation wow. and it is. Okay. I mean, he, his belief takes him to a single thought place mm. and that's beautiful. For a lot of people, prayer is meditation. Mm-hmm. But no, to me, I think it's it's a part of my life. Everything mm. everything is, um, I don't do anything for the sake of something. I just have a life that's yeah. my life. Talk to me about this next chapter of your life and corporate speaking and life after the living room. Mm. What's What excites you about this next chapter? What excites me about this next, next chapter? It's funny. I just said to you, I don't think about dying too much, but it's in the back of my mind. I want the world to be a better place. Mm-hmm. I've got 11-year-old twins. I'm 62, living with cancer. I want to know that I'm doing everything I can to make sure that the life, the world they live in is the best world it can be. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm not here to protect them, I want to know that society is protecting them in a sense. And I want to know society is protecting Mm -hmm. all of us. I think um, in the last two decades, there's been a real divide between humanity and the corporate world. Yeah. I think we've realized that the, the smarter corporations have realized that we have to invest in humanity. I think that the life that I have had, the lessons I've learned from it, and the reason we're sitting here is because I'm, I can tell a story about that that may help others find their own track mm-hmm. of a better humanity. So I, I offer up corporations, different platforms, different programs on 
just working with individuals within the corporation or working with teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, basically just sharing what I've learned and showing people how to tailor themselves their, their own needs. You said that you want to know that there is this better life or better humanity out there. What does that look like to you? Yeah, it, it was funny. A friend asked me yesterday, who's your ideal client? Mm. And I said, it's a client who equally is invested in its workforce, Mm -hmm. its ability to profit, and its ability to stay sustainable. If we have that, if a workforce is happy to be be contributing to profit in a company that's sustainable, Mm. that to me has a lot of ripples in life. We will be happier. Depression is one of the biggest epidemics we have in the world. Mm. Anxiety for young people is that lack of resilience is where we've got to. That's a big, solid, steel, heavy ball going in the wrong direction. And there are corporations seeing that it's better if we can get some grains of sand in Mm. front of that big ball and start heading it to a place where there's less depression, where there's humans are thriving. Because when humans thrive, they innovate, Mm -hmm. they create, they explore, they stay inquisitive. And that's what makes a thriving society. A couple of quick fire questions before we wrap up. Mm. I'm interested to hear, you know, you've lived this big life, you're still living it. If you could pull up a chair with younger Barry right now and he was sitting across from you, is there anything that you would say? Me as younger Barry, I'd reinforce self-belief. When it comes down to it, you're the only person you got. Mm. Prepare yourself the best you can to be the best you can. Thank you. Finally, everyone answers the same question on this podcast. We have this closing tradition you can kind of answer in as many or as little words as you like. But the question is, Barry, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> Barry, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> the meaning of life is to, uh, it's a great question, isn't it? Fulfill yourself and by doing that, inspire those around you to love those around them and to share that so that the people coming into the world have a better place than we had. Beautiful. With that, we'll wrap up. I just want to, again, say thank you so much for your time, your generosity in sharing. I found this to be incredibly impactful. Your emotional vulnerability, it's not something that is easy to to meet a stranger essentially and within 10 minutes be, you know, opening up and talking about your life story. So I feel the need to say not only thank you for me, but on behalf of the listeners, thank you for the work that you're doing and for the kindness and the love and the generosity that you're putting out into the world. I think you set an incredible example. So thank you. Thank you and stay strong. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats. Life Chats.